Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I am so excited to introduce Dr. Nicole Harkin. How are you? I'm so good. How are you doing? Good. And we met recently and I'm just tickled to meet you and I've just been impressed and really enjoyed speaking to you. So I really want to share all the amazing things that you have in that noggin of yours with your cardiologist, life and plant face is just a beautiful thing. So I'm so excited for people to understand your story and everything about you. So Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about maybe just kind of what made you want to become a doctor to begin with? Oh, we're going to start way back. I love oh, it. Oh yeah. Oh, please. You're young and come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I became interested in medicine. Um, it was, ne- I definitely was not one of those doctors that had this you know, I knew from the age of five, I was going to be a doctor. Um, I definitely was just always interested in science. Um, and I actually went to an all girls high school. Um, and I really think that, um, I have to give them credit. I didn't fully realize the impact it would have, but, um, I think definitely allowed me to be more, um, just excited and interested in, in my science classes, particularly biology, and just was really, really interested in biology. And that kind of continued into college and, um, actually I entered college thinking pre-med, um, and then, um, I took general chemistry and I hated it. I was like, this is not for me. It's not meant to be. I actually dropped the course. And it was just like done. Um, but I actually continued with some of my biology courses and just loved them. Um, and my professor was like, you're crazy. Like you, this is, you're good at this stuff. You like this. If you want to do medicine, you should do it. Um, And then randomly organic chemistry, I like really, really liked as well. So I was like, okay, maybe science is my thing. (laughs) So um, ended up doing general chemistry over the summer and continued on to the the pre-med track. Um, And then did a lot of actually international work. Um, And throughout medical school, I really thought I was gonna um, maybe do more of like a a public health kind of thing. Um, So, um, and or maybe infectious disease. So ended up doing a lot of work in Central South America and um, abroad and just really, really um, enjoyed um, the, the interaction with the patients. Um, and, um, and then eventually when I was in residency at Columbia, um, which is a very cardiology heavy program, mm. um, was when I think I kind of got inundated with cardiology and I was like, this is cool. This is exciting. This is what I want to do. And I loved procedures and, um, and then just most importantly, kind of getting back to the public health aspect of it. Um, you know, it's the number one killer of men and women across the globe. Right. Mm. Um, and so just this, this idea that you could have this massive impact on the health and well-being of people, um, just really drove drove my interest, um, and so um, went to fellowship um, at NYU, um, which is a very you know uh, cardiology is an intense fellowship experience. It is fully immersive, and you are just in it. Um, but throughout this, have always been. Um, interested in sort of population health and, and prevention in general. Um, and so had the opportunity to work with the prevention department at NYU um, and was um, my last year of fellowship, um, spent a couple of months just rotating through, through that program uh, with them. Um, so I'm a non-invasive cardiologist, which means that I, um, I don't do procedures anymore. Um, I'm a just general cardiologist, um, but consider myself very much a preventive cardiologist. That's my, my passion. Um, 
And then I'm actually also a lipidologist. Um, so also was decided to get boarded in, in the study of cholesterol. Mm. Um, so that's sort of my, my training and my path to becoming a cardiologist. Um, and um, out of fellowship now five years um, and a very um, worked in private practice um, for the last couple of years. And then recently relocated with my family to San Francisco. Um, and so been here for a couple of months now um, and launched my own uh, preventive telecardiology practice. Awesome. There's so much to ask. So, in, you know, <laughs> after, after we spoke and you talked about, you know, being a lipidologist and I spoke to another cardiologist and I was like, you know, I wonder if there's a way, like, is there classes or something for a primary care doctor? Because I get a ton of these questions. Like, you know, they come to us first and then we send them to you guys typically. And um, there are, so the National Lipid Association, they have some tracks for primary care docs to do a similar type of board, board certification. So I'm working through that. It's a fascinating thing. So I definitely want to talk to you about that. And um, I'm bringing on Dr. Kim Williams and Eugenia. Yana. Uh, uh, Yes, Gianna. my mentor. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's fantastic. I'm bringing them on together in February, but I really want to prime this conversation and get as much information as as possible because I get so many uh, individuals and patients who are plant based um, but are still having high cholesterol. So maybe we can just kind of dive into that right now. But I'd, first, before we get there, I would like to know your plant based journey, how you decided to go to a, a plant based type of a diet. Yeah. So I um, let's see. It started actually not um, sort of in relation to health, interestingly. So um, about, and it's funny because I didn't fully realize how instrumental, um, sorry, did you lose? That's okay. No, you're good. Those earbuds. Um, <laughs> so um, it's funny because I don't know the exact date um, and I didn't fully realize how instrumental sort of this experience would be, but um it was about 10 years ago um, when I read a book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safranfor. And it's more kind of the, the exploration of sort of the culture of why we eat the certain animals we eat, and then really just dives into sort of industrial farming and, and all of that. Um, and this is also in the backdrop I should in full disclosure, I have to give my sister a shout out. She's a veterinarian and she has is a, been a a vegetarian for eons. And um, so she'd sort of been planting the seeds um, over the, you know, the last handful of years and then read this book and just was like, that's it. I cannot contribute to you know industrial farm anymore. I'm done eating meat. So that's when I had the last, my last bite of meat. Um, I had uh, one weird craving for chicken wings. <laughs> Like it's so weird. In my very first, yeah, and no, like just like a buffalo chicken wing. Okay. I didn't fully, you know, realize I probably could have just done cauliflower and been satisfied, but it was this weird craving in my very first pregnancy. So that's actually probably the last time I had meat. Um so um, so yeah, that's kind of where uh my plant-based journey started was actually more, you know, from an ethical and environmental standpoint. Um, and then um I would say at some point throughout my fellowship when I was um involved in the prevention program and actually, you know, working with Eugenia and everything, um, you know, there, it's definitely, I would say, um, most uh cardiology programs, um, there's a little bit more of an emphasis on um, kind of Mediterranean diet and things like that. But 
you know, so much overlap, um, mm -hmm. being obviously lots of plants. Um, and so just really interested in prevention. And that's when I started getting uh, more fascinated uh, with sort of the, the implications of nutrition and that overlap with, with cardiovascular prevention. Awesome. Just started doing a lot of self-study at that point and just delving into um, the literature um, and um, uh, so with Eugenia, actually my research project at the time was um, we looked at uh, both internists and cardiologists in terms of their knowledge of nutritional science and their interest in it and all that stuff. Um, so um, yeah, and then just over the years have just become more and more and more plant-based and, and really interested in helping my patients um, on those journeys as well. Fantastic. So can we just start with the conversation on what is cholesterol? I mean, let's just get down to the basics and just kind of build from there, because I think, you know, a lot of people are maybe even confused at exactly what cholesterol is and what its function is in the body. Yeah, so it's um, a fat-like substance that um, is important for our body, right? We use it um, for, for uh, vitamin D and steroids and hormones and all kinds of things. So it is important um, in our body, um, but when we have too much of it, it is the primary driver of what causes blockages in our arteries. And, um, and cholesterol, how we, we, we measure it in what's called a lipid panel. That's usually how most patients will sort of see their cholesterol. Um, so when their doctor's checking their cholesterol, that's what they're drawing is, is what's called a lipid panel. And we're looking at the amount of cholesterol that's contained in various um, lipoproteins, which are basically just um, vehicles or little transporters for our cholesterol um, in, in the body. Um, and so we get a measure for our LDL cholesterol, um, which is the bad cholesterol. Um, and that's typically the cholesterol that gets um, uh, that is in our bloodstream. And if there's too much of it, um, deposits in the arteries of our, our heart and elsewhere. Um, and then we get, and that's called the LDL cholesterol. And then we have the, the good cholesterol or the HDL which is the type of cholesterol that's contained within the lipoproteins that tend to um, go back, shuttle back to the liver to get processed out. Um, so those are kind of the two forms that we end up, and then there's the triglycerides obviously, and, and, um, um, and that's the, the fatty acids and things that are in our body as well. So that's sort of the, the bare bone basics of how most people interact with, with cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at that panel or a patient's looking at the panel, what number should they be I would say optimal because we could talk about the different things and risk factors here in a second, but what would be an optimal cholesterol panel or a lipid panel would you suggest? Yeah, so um, the primary um, number that we look at the most right now is the LDL cholesterol. Um, and we can even get into the various ways that we can measure all the bad cholesterol and things like that. But how most patients will interact with it is this LDL cholesterol in the standard panel. And we like to see that um, optimally below 100 milligrams per deciliter. Um, for many of our patients, we like to see that even lower. As a cardiologist, most of my patients who have established heart disease or a lot of risk factors for heart disease, we like that um, to definitely be below 70. Okay. And then, so when there is some, you know, you read, there's, I feel so bad for our patients because there's so much confusion when you hear about cholesterol is not bad. It's not good. It's, it's okay. Whatever you hear all these things and diet doesn't affect LDL is not important. So when you're talking about diet in respect to your cholesterol, what can we see is how much does it affect it? Is it something that someone should be aware of in 
what was your advice to patients from that standpoint? Yeah, um, this is definitely one of the topics um, in our field that has suffered the most from, from controversies and, and misinformation. And some of that stems from our evolving understanding of how, how diet does impact our cholesterol numbers. So um, the simplest way kind of to break it down in terms of what impacts our cholesterol numbers the, the most, for most people, that's saturated fat. Mm. Um, so the consumption of saturated fat um, gets, you know, absorbed into the body, um, and then the from there the liver can make package that all up into, into cholesterol um, that gets transported in, in throughout the body. So um, by eating less saturated fat, um, the body, the liver actually seeks out other sources, um, and so it'll increase. Um, the little receptors that go onto our liver to, to suck it back out of, of the, the bloodstream. Um, and so actually that's a very potent way that we can, we can lower our cholesterol is by swapping out saturated fat um, for, for other things. Um, what we see in the research is if you swap it out for monounsaturated fat, complex carbs and po um, polyunsaturated fat, we see that those numbers come down nicely. In terms of dietary cholesterol, um, it, that's uh, definitely been the subject of, of a lot of controversy. We do know that it matters. It matters probably differently um, for different people and in consideration with what, but the good news is, is if you're focused on lowering your saturated fat, you're also gonna lower your cholesterol. And so while it is true that uh, the main source of, of cholesterol within our body is what our body's making, um, not necessarily what our what we absorb from our diet. There are many individuals who actually absorb a lot more of cholesterol from from their diet, mm -hmm. um, uh, and so the, it's just based on the transporter in the intestines. Um, mm -hmm. But but to keep it pretty straightforward, if you lower your animal products, you're lowering both. Okay, so most of the time when you're talking about saturated fats, these are going to be coming from animal products, cheese and dairy, uh, meat even some fatty fish I'm assuming would have higher levels of saturated fats versus others, but those also contain the cholesterol. So we're not, it's hard to maybe figure out exactly where the cholesterol, dietary cholesterol with saturated fat and where those lines cross. I mean, how would you study that? I would be curious, is it, if you eat dietary cholesterol, how would you measure that it's strictly the dietary cholesterol or is it the saturated fat that's a partner with it and kind of comes with it in the one package? Right. So I think a lot of it comes from the epidemiologic studies where they try to account for, for mm. the cholesterol intake and things like that. But you're right. It's very difficult to sort of sort out the two. And then, and then mechanistically, we also know sort of how each one works and things like that. So if you block the uptake, like for instance, Zetia, like you can block the uptake of cholesterol, right? So you can mechanistically look at how different things affect your body in different mm. ways. Fascinating. So um, definitely saturated fats, still think, and then some individuals with the cholesterol. Because I mean, even myself, I've seen patients, um, I think the biggest one that I ever saw that really stood out was in 30 days after going to a plant-based diet is total cholesterol dropped 120 points. Granted, it was just right around 300, but it was really quite remarkable to see even what 30 days could do. Um, and then as far as the heart disease uh, burden, what does a plant-based diet do as far as, you know, the, the atherosclerosis? Is there regression? Is there not? Is it, you know, what did the studies say or what does science say about the heart disease risk in um, dietary saturated fats, cholesterol? 
Yeah, so um, we see really powerful results when patients move towards plant predominant or plant-based diets. So we at this point have um, lots of, of both epidemiologic, which is where you study whole populations um, and analyze what they're eating and what their life expectancy and their, um, their heart attack rates and things like that are. And then also randomized controlled trials, um, not all of strictly plant-based, but um, very plant-predominant type diets. And uniformly, we see that the more uh, plants, so you know, for your listeners, I'm sure they all know this by now, but fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds. Um, as people consume more and more uh, of those, we see the, the risks of, of heart attack and heart disease and death from heart uh, disease all, all go down. Um, and you know, some of that is the, um, uh, the decreased saturated fat. A lot of it's also the, um, the fiber, which we didn't talk about, but that also is really potent at lowering cholesterol. It kind of keeps um, the, the cholesterol from getting absorbed into the GI tract. Um, uh, lots of antioxidants, phytonutrients, all that other good stuff that comes along with plants. And we're increasingly realizing with heart disease that while LDL cholesterol is very important, it is the primary driver of, of heart disease, inflammation is also really critical. And so, um, and, and you know, we really see that um, plant-based type diets or plant-predominant diets are really um, anti-inflammatory. Um, and so I think you're really hitting the, the cardiovascular disease perspective from, from multiple different uh, modalities and approaches when you increase your plant intake. So that's fascinating. So when you have someone who comes to see you, let's say that they either have high cardiac risk factors or they've already had an event, um, but maybe a stent or something, what do you look for? Like what lab tests do you order? What should someone expect to see when they come to see a preventive cardiologist? Like what, what should they have their mindset to discuss? Or maybe what should they bring to the appointment too? Like what information would be helpful um, just kind of in preparation for something like that? Yeah. So, um, so first and foremost, um, certainly a, a full uh, history is is just critical. So, um, not only you know medical problems and medications and supplements and things like that, um, but but family history, um, right? So, uh, a strong family history, which for us cardiologists is um, a male, a first degree male a relative who's had a heart attack or a heart event um, uh, before the age of fifty five, and a female first degree relative um, before the age of sixty five. Um, that becomes critically important important. Um, personal for women, um, definitely menopause history, so early menopause, um, uh, or gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, or pregnancy complications. Um, these are all risk factors for, for heart disease. Um, and then other medical problems that people might not think of um, that are also associated with, with increased risk of heart disease or inflammatory disorders, um, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. So um, having a really good um, comprehensive history of, of all of kind of your um, medical problems and, and concerns. Um, symptoms obviously are very important. Um, and then your current sort of lifestyle. Um, diet is obviously a big one that I touch on. You know, what are you eating now? Do you restrict anything? All of that kind of stuff. Um, but then all the other things that we are increasingly realizing from a lifestyle perspective are really important for cardiovascular disease, stress levels, sleep, um, you know, all of that obviously physical exercise, sedentary behavior, all of that kind of stuff um, is, is part of the, the really comprehensive history that I take. Um, and then, um, and then we also, um, as you mentioned, look at a lot of uh, lab tests as well. So above and beyond the standard lipid panel, which is quite good for, for many people and for low, low risk individuals, that's 
often sufficient. Um, but um, for, for many of my patients who are really looking to, um, to drill down and optimize, um, I do do a, a more advanced uh, lipid profile, um, which essentially is looking at not um, so the standard LDL cholesterol, when you get that number, that's looking at how much cholesterol is in that LDL particle contained. And um, this is increasingly becoming more of a problem um, as we see rates of obesity and insulin resistance and all this go up. We're seeing um, an increased discordance, meaning that you can have different sizes of these cholesterol particles. This is getting a little complicated, but no, it's good. Uh, but it's, it's important. Good. I think it's really important that people understand it. So, um, so you can have different sizes of cholesterols, right? So you can have these big, fluffy LDL cholesterols or lots of small, dense LDL cholesterols. And um, because of the different sizes, you can have um, the same amount of LDL cholesterol on that, that standard lipid panel, um, but have very different LDL particle numbers, which are measuring those, those vehicles themselves. And in individuals where there's this discordance between the LDL cholesterol and the particle number, meaning they have higher particles than you would expect based mm. on looking at their LDL cholesterol, the LDL particle becomes more predictive of their cardiovascular risk. So in individuals like that, looking at either the ApoB, which is the little protein that's on those vehicles, or actually measuring all those particles can be really helpful, um, particularly if you're really, really looking to optimize their risks. So I look at a lot of those kind of things. Um, there's also something called lipoprotein A, which I don't know if we have time for, but I think is super important um, that... Um, it's definitely an increasingly recognized um, cholesterol issue. Um, and it's quite common. One in five Americans may have a very elevated lipoprotein A, which is kind of just a fancy LDL cholesterol particle with a funny little protein attached to it. And for various reasons, it is more atherogenic uh, potentially than even LDL cholesterol, meaning it can cause plaque um, buildup and it deposits plaque in the, the arteries and, and all that stuff. So I definitely, everyone uh, gets that measured for sure. Um, and then different measures of cardiometabolic resistance, glucose, fasting glucose, um, insulin, all those kinds of things. So when you, let's go back to the, the lipoprotein that the little okay. a, that, that is really curious. So what should someone be looking for? How can they lower it? Is there anything naturally dietary wise exercise? Is this a genetic predisposition? There's nothing you can do. So what is, what have you found that works in that, um, category? Yeah. So this could be like a podcast in and of itself. But, yeah, um, I'm pretty sure. It could. Right? I mean, it's, it's such an interesting um, and emerging uh, uh, risk factor, but um, essentially, so as I said, it's a, it's a LDL particle that has this little protein attached to it, um, the apolipoprotein A. Um, and so like LDL, it's, um, it, it deposits cholesterol into the arteries. So that's one way it's bad. Um, the second way it's bad is that little protein that's attached to the LDL particle um, actually resembles something called plasminogen, which is a clotting factor. And so it's, it, it increases the risk of, of blood clots as well. And then it's actually really strongly associated um, with um, aortic stenosis as well, which is the most common valvular disorder in the United States, essentially where your aortic valve, which is the valve that's um, between your heart and the rest of the body, and it um, opens when the heart pumps blood out. As we get older, that starts to get thickened, and that's somewhat normal aging, um, but, uh, but many people get, um, it, it becomes calcified and that becomes aortic stenosis um, and that, um, that requires a, a valve replacement. Um, and so elevated LP little a, um, which is 
defined variably, but um, below 30 milligrams per deciliter is considered very, very normal. Above 50 is considered elevated. It's estimated that about one in five Americans have an elevated LP little a. Um, and it does increase your risk of cardiovascular disease by twofold, aortic stenosis, I think by twofold or so, and then um, blood clots like DVTs, the ones on the legs or pulmonary embolism, the ones in the, in the uh, lungs by about threefold or, something or so. Um, so it's an important risk factor. Um, the LP little a cholesterol content is more or less captured in that LDL cholesterol. Um, but, um, but I've seen so many people that, you know, come to me with these elevated LP little a's, um, that, that, that didn't know and, and had either premature coronary disease, um, or their family had premature coronary disease. Um, it is by and large genetically determined, um, which, uh, is disheartening for many ways, because it's also, um, not readily, um, manipulated by diet. Mm. Um, so how most of us at this point are approaching it, um, we don't have there, the only medication actually that can reduce it is the new drugs, PCSK9 inhibitors, which are not specifically approved for that indication. Um, and we also don't have a clinical trial yet, um, that shows that by lowering it with artificially with a drug, we actually decrease cardiovascular risk. So we're waiting on those trials. In the meantime, most of us use it as, um, a risk enhancing feature, meaning that if I see that, particularly if you have a strong family history, I am very aggressive about making sure that all your other risk factors are really, 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 really well optimized. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, we work a lot with diet. It's weird. Diet's a weird one. Um, actually mm -hmm. some of the studies have shown that all of our typical manipulations that you and I do to lower LDL cholesterol with diet actually help you a little, like goes up a little bit, which is just, what? I know it's just, it's just hurting and you're like, okay, but, um, but we all, you know, at least the experts in the field still agree that you should still, you know, lower LDL with the proper dietary, um, uh, measures, but, um, but yeah, there's one study that I've seen, but a very small that actually did show plant-based diet lowered the LP little a a little bit. Ooh. Um, anecdotally, I'll tell you that I don't see it move much in my patients. Um, so, um, so we really focus on the LDL. We focus on, on the, the glucose. Um, we focus on, you know, making sure they're not sedentary and, you know, all those other things that we know, um, for the moment. And then hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll have more therapeutics potentially. So I'm, I'm going to give you a few patient scenarios and let me kind of give me some guidance. Let's Ooh, see. Yeah, this would be good. Yeah. So um, let's start with myself. This is, and these are true numbers and facts. So biological father, first heart attack, 38. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he's had others. We're not connect. We're don't, we're not in, in communication, but I was 18. <laughs> he was 38 when he had his first heart attack. Um, second to that, my mother's grandfather died at 46 of a massive heart attack, but he was a smoker, but that's all I know about that. Um, but I'm healthy other than hypothyroidism since the age of 24. And I had my kid, uh, my second kiddo or 25, somewhere in there. Um, well controlled, blood pressure is great. No, never been overweight, never pre-diabetic, nothing like that. Cholesterol is always under 150. My LDL is usually under 60. Um, triglycerides are like 30 something, <laughs> my HDL is always over 60. So you have someone like that who's pretty healthy, but that has this predominant factor. I haven't had my LP little I checked. I should do that for sure. Um, what what would be your, your uh, first intention with someone like who's relatively healthy, but has some risk factors and now I'm perimenopausal, I'm 50. Um, any thoughts there? 
Okay. So first of all, you're not pretty healthy. You're extremely healthy. You're like <laughs> the top 1% probably of healthfulness. So this is not exactly fair. You are not a normal. Okay. okay. You're doing everything right. But the one thing I would say, I mean, no, I mean, you've, you've done exactly where, so most patients are coming to me with that type of a history that are kind of like, kind of healthy. I try. And that's where we really focus on optimizing all those things. And we can see that going down. And, um, you didn't tell me your, 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 your activity, but I know you run, I run 30 plus miles a week. So you're already doing all the things, right? Yeah. The one thing that, um, and you wouldn't technically at all fall into the the guidelines of where we recommend this, but the one um, test that we haven't talked about yet that um, for for many of my patients who are you know reasonably healthy but kind of want to know where they're at um, is a coronary artery calcification scores. Mm. Sometimes I get those. Um, just because we see patients who have doing all the right things and you know because of these these genetic issues, we yeah. do end up seeing, you know, surprising results. So in someone like you, you're actually kind of that, that perfect age range as well, um, where we would get the, the CAC or the coronary artery calcification score. So what that is for your listeners, it's a specialized CAT scan that looks specifically at um, the arteries in the heart. Um, and it's protocoled now down. Um, so the, the amount of radiation, I think it's like one millisievert at this point, it's about a mammogram basically. Um, so, you know, there's radiation, we're not doing these every year on people, but, but it's, you know, not, not an ex- extraordinary amount. Um, and and basically we can quantify the amount of calcium that's in the arteries of the heart. Um, and then basically you're given a score, um, which is either zero, which is obviously wonderful. Um, and there's been lots of trials to demonstrate that, um, you can really change someone's risk up or down with these coronary artery calcification scores, specifically the zeros, right? Mm. So in patients who this would not be you, but, um, and many of my patients who are sort of at this borderline risk and we're really working hard on all the lifestyle things, but their LDL is still kind of like not where we want it. Do we start a statin? Do we not? That That's where it can be really helpful um, because mm. if there's zero, I feel very comfortable. You know, we're at a place that, that you're doing all the right things. Um, maybe your LDL is not exactly where I want it to be, but there's not this like urgency. We have to start the statin now um, because studies show with the coronary artery calcification score of zero, your risk of a, of a heart attack or cardiac event in the next five years is very, very low. Um, so that's one way it can be useful. Um, and then in, and in contrast to that, in people who you think are really healthy, but all of a sudden their coronary artery calcification score uh, is over 100 or definitely over 300, um, or they're, they're much higher in terms of their age adjusted. So you get also not only a number, you get a percent um, for your age and, and kind of where you compare for other women your age, say. Um, and so if you're really off, um, then, then that can kind of be a wake up call of, okay, something's not optimized, where what's going on. Um, so I find those to, to be really helpful in, lo- in lots of individuals. I'd say, I want to just point out the one caveat being that, um, it's mostly the most of the data is 40 and up. So it's not the most appropriate test for, unless you're have a lot of risk factors, um, for the younger population. So the one thing I'll say is the, the coronary artery calcification score of zero, for instance, in someone who's 30 is not necessarily reassured. I mean, it's good that it's zero, mm-hmm. but, um, just to point out that it, it's only measuring the calcification within an artery. So there's something called, so the evolution kind of of a plaque, um, is that once the cholesterol builds up into the artery, um, 
at first it's it's um, not calcified, right? Um, it's called a soft plaque. Um, and so, so we would expect that most people, if they do have plaque in their 30s, it's soft plaque. And so that isn't it picked up in the coronary calcification score. Um, and we don't have a ton of studies to show that the CAC of zero in like the younger population is as reassuring. Um, so obviously if they have coronary artery calcification score, that's a huge wake up call for someone there in their thirties. Um, but just to show that the, just to, you know, but this, but it does miss soft plaque, right? And that's also important because um, as we're starting to use these more and more um, in terms of how often do you get them? Um, what, what, you know, every, we will see evolution of plaque, even if you're doing all the right things. For instance, statins, um, they, they stabilize plaque, meaning they um, calm the plaque, the inflammation within the plaque. It's part of why they're so effective, not just in lowering cholesterol, but they're part of why they're so effective in lowering rates of heart attack. But what actually we see is that um, once you're on a statin, the, the, the CACs will go up a little bit because it's stabilizing the plaque, right? Oh, wow. So it's all that soft plaque that you had, say, you know, in 2020, and then if I check you again in 2023, um, the CAC will will go up if you're on a satin because it's calcifying all of that other plaque that you had. Interesting. So is so, it actually beneficial to get multiple, you know, CAC scores or just so, one? Yeah, so it depends. It, it, this is where the personalization um, really comes into play. Um, if your score is zero, um, we definitely um, would not recommend repeating it until at least five years. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of has a five-year warranty such that <laughs> those five years, as long as you haven't, had, you know, there hasn't been any major changes in your lifestyle, those that your, your risk of heart attack and stroke, et cetera, is, is low for those five years. Um, if it's sort of like at the 100 and um, you're worried they're progressing more quickly, um, you can check it. Um, within three to five years, the guidelines say it's, this is all very much still kind of in the, the, the workings of it. And then obviously if you have a 300 and up or established coronary disease, there's no point in, in checking it again, gotcha. because it's not going to really change anything you're doing. So now I've got another patient for you. So now we're moving up in evolution. So now you've got someone maybe has some other lifestyle factors. Maybe they were diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, well, no, let's, let's step back one more. I have healthy plant-based eaters who are strict whole food plant-based eaters. They're salt, oil, sugar-free, normal weight, exercise, but their cholesterol, no matter what we do, budges around between like 190, the low 200s. They may or may not have an elevated LDL, but typically closer to 100, maybe just over 100. Triglycerides usually are pretty low. HDL will vary between 40s, somewhere in there. I'm getting a cluster of these guys, but they have no symptoms. They've never had any cardiac events. Their first question is, do I start a statin? So where do you begin that conversation with those type of patients? So what you said that LDL or the total cholesterol? Total cholesterol will usually always be, that's what usually gets people triggered is it's usually above like 190, low 200s. They're in that range and their LDL is sometimes over hundred, but most of the time it's in that definitely above 70, um, in that range that there seems to be that cluster of patients that I'm, I see a lot of them actually. <laughs> yeah. So most of us don't focus as much on the total cholesterol. Um, those are typically who I, mostly I focus on the LDL cholesterol as my primary target. Um, and then in, in people, if I'm concerned about sort of once I feel like, you know, the LDL is 
optimized or not quite optimized or what's going on. That's where sometimes the advanced panel can be helpful, either mm -hmm. checking an ApoB or checking their LDL particle, right? Gotcha. So um, if to, to see if there's any signs of insulin resistance or anything like that as, as, as well. Um, so, you know, around a hundred is, is reasonable if, okay. if all of their, for an LDL, if all of their other risk factors are, are well controlled. Um, so the total cholesterol in and of itself would not trigger me to, to start gotcha. to do anything, um, okay. you know, as long as all, you know, other things, are. all the other things are in order. And then there's others who maybe they were diabetic, uh, no longer diabetic, or maybe they're in the process of eating well and their blood sugars are coming down, they're on medications and weaning down, blood pressures are improving. So you have these people with some serious risk factors for heart disease, but they've not had an event. Um, and they're very resistant to starting, you know, maybe cholesterol. But when they're doing this and they're transitioning, maybe their cholesterol, their LDL is dropping down below 100. Would you consider these risk factors enough to say, yes, you probably should be on a statin. And, and when, let's say they reverse everything because you know a year from now, they're no longer diabetic, hypertensive, normal weight. Do you stop that statin if they've been on the statin? So if they had no cardiac events, like that's a big discussion too. You maybe get someone with a statin who's made these amazing lifestyle changes and now they're better. They're like, I don't think I need this statin anymore. What do I do? How do you begin that yeah, conversation? <laughs> absolutely. And these are some of, these are, these are, those are great cases because this is like where the art of, of, you know, there's no specific one guideline to say yes. what we should do with these people. Um, and um, so this is all where it becomes kind of that risk benefit patient conversation. Um, you know, we, we can explain what we know, um, what we don't know, what are the limitations. Um, and this is where it gets really hard because guidelines are are for on a population-wide basis, right? This is what a on a population-wide basis we should do, but for each individual, it doesn't tell us specifically for that one individual how they mm -hmm. will. So, um, you know, certainly individuals with diabetes are um, should be on a statin period, right? So we know that. So, but what happens if they reverse their diabetes with, mm -hmm. with diet? Um, and, um, and so I think it would also depend on family history, all their other risk factors. Um, and then these are also, and then just sort of their appetite for risk um, and versus their desire to not be on medications. And every patient's really different. I have some patients who, um, you know, they're at this borderline risk. Um, so, you know, you can put in all their current numbers into say the ACCHA mm -hmm. um, calculator. Cardiac risk, yeah. Yeah, so we can kind of calculate their, their risk based on what the studies would have shown us a person with similar numbers, what their quote unquote tenure uh, or lifetime risk is. Um, so a lot of times that's where I'll start. I'll put in the numbers and I'll say, this is what sort of the data shows us. You, this isn't, um, you know, it may not be reflective of you specifically because you're diet, you've brought this down with diet or whatever else, but, um, but I think that's a good starting point. And then, and then kind of um, some patients when they see, uh, you know, over in the next, you know, 10 years, your risk of a heart attack is 5%. They're like, give me that statin. I don't care, you know, and that's it. And that's great. That's their decision. Right. And mm -hmm. then other patients, um, uh, say, you know, I really, 
don't want to be on a statin, then, then that's their choice as well, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's where this borderline and intermediate risk group, um, you know, if your risk is somewhere between 5% to 20% of having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years, um, these, these are the people that um, do benefit from advanced testing. So what's their, what's their high sensitivity CRP? Um, what are the, the particle numbers? What is their coronary calcification score? Um, we've talked about carotid INTs, but those can be really helpful as well. So that's where you can kind of get some of these other diagnostics to sort of round out the picture and then you present everything to them and then you help them make that decision. Absolutely. I think that's great because I mean, even recently a patient with COVID who had been a long distance runner previously. um, So you have someone who's, you know, let's say later forties had been very active, but now they, now we've got this new kind of invited, uninvited guest (laughs) making their presence known. And we don't know what those long-term effects on, you know, the, the myocardium, the heart health and what that's doing. So, but they might have had some inflammation of myocarditis and some other things. And it showed actually some EKG changes, high cholesterol, wasn't aware, recent new to plant-based eating. And you've put in their calculated score and it's like 5.6 or six, somewhere in there. I'm like, I think we need to start this data until we know more about what's going on. But what is your suggestion when you have others that are kind of like, they're new to the diet, cholesterol is definitely not optimal, um, but maybe they had COVID and they had some inflammatory response because they had an abnormal EKG where they had a normal before. Where would you begin that, that just, you know, kind of exploration, I guess? Yeah. So I think in patients who I'm concerned about in a more, um, you know, acute period of time, I definitely am favor pharmacologic intervention early on, um, reassuring the patient, we can always peel these back. And, yeah. and it's one of my favorite things to do, by the way. So um, <laughs> exactly. you don't have established heart disease. It's my favorite thing to do. No. Yeah. Um, so so I think that definitely having that conversation with them that medications aren't necessarily lifelong. Um, I have lots of patients who've come into me with, you know, really high blood pressures or whatever else, but they're super excited for lifestyle changes. And for many of those individuals, um, you know, I'm starting you today on two blood pressure medications because I do not want you to have a stroke. However, exactly. I'm super excited that you're enthusiastic about these changes. They do take some time. And, and in some of those people are super, super enthusiastic. You do have to watch them very closely, like see you in a week kind of thing yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and get some of those blood pressure medicines off. But, um, but people, a lot of people definitely don't um, always realize that just because I'm starting a medication doesn't mean that we can't stop it together mm-hmm. in a fashion. Um, and so certainly I think erring on the side of caution when in doubt um, with the idea that as we know more, we can peel things back. And COVID's a great example. We, you know, it's, it's such an emerging area of, of mm-hmm. um, you know, and so, so if you're concerned about people, um, you know, I think certainly erring on the side of caution is, is reasonable. Um, and just speaking about COVID, you know, myocarditis is a great example of how we're still really learning a lot about that. Um, and the big one would just be, you know, cautioning with like excessive exercise and things like that. Um, right. So yes, uh, which was part of a conversation. Yes. Yeah, yes. Very much. Very yes. It was very, very, yes, yes. But it was a very, yes, yes. That was very big part of the conversation. So, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking of a few other things, you know, I tell people all the time, because I'd say 95% of my patients are diabetic. I get a lot of diabetics in management of um, their insulin and um, I'm getting a lot of type one and a half, which are interesting, these late onset autoimmune type diabetes and adulthood. Um, 
really interesting how they evolve and they're so very unique. Like you said, it's that personalized art of medicine in that sense. And then you're throwing in all the lifestyle medicine factors, which are improving things. And you're just like, it, it's, it's, it's a real, it keeps the mind sharp. Let's just put it that way on, on no, our end. Totally. <laughs> People think about lifestyle medicine. They're like, Oh, oh no, you know, no, no. Can't you just leave that to them? I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. <laughs> this gets really interesting and really crazy, really fast. It gets really crazy. <laughs> I think it's an evolving practice. I mean, because honestly, you know, now we're getting in my practice because, you know, I'm always, for nine plus years, I've been working on plant-based diet, but I'm learning about the sleep and all these other things. And, you know, I've always been advocating exercise and all this stuff, but it is incredible to me. The, the, <laughs> The practice of lifestyle medicine is like, it's almost like going to residency again, because it is a very different, and each patient is so different. And when they enter into the world of lifestyle medicine, you know, they're stepping outside of traditional, just here's another pill go out the door. It's like, okay, where are you sleeping? Looking at this. I mean, it's just, it's just so fascinating. It is amazing. It is, it's great stuff. And it's just, I, I love that. Um, I just feel so privileged that I'm able to, to help patients in this way. And it's just, Amazing. it's so exciting. Oh. Um, and I love that, you know, we, we, um, you're able to sort of blend the both, both best of both yes. worlds. Right. Yes. Um, yes. So, um, you know, as we've discussed, I'm a cardiologist, I use statins, but I right. also love it when I don't have to. Um, right. and so, so I think it's great that we can really, you know, it doesn't have to be this weird dichotomy where it's one thing or the other. It's like merging them together to, yeah. to better serve our patients. And, you know, I think that's kind of what the new evolution of, you know, you, so we had some amazing plant-based doctors who trailblaze, but a lot of some of the gurus would say, you know, plant-based diet, forget the statins, they're harmful. No, 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 you're exactly right. We need to blend both worlds. And so I think that's where the evolution of plant-based diet is kind of being enfolded in lifestyle medicine. So now we're, we're looking at the science and we're applying it to each individual. And it's really important that you have someone who understands what they're doing with that. Because I've had patients who, for example, um, I worked with the wife, most of this happened multiple times, and maybe she was hypertensive or something else, diabetes. Well, the husband just kind of gets dragged along with the healthy diet and he, he has his own health issues. Yeah. And I'm always asking, is it's always on my mind, how's your husband or how's your wife doing? And they're like, you know, it's really interesting. And this really, this happened within the last, you know, six months. You know, it's interesting. He's been really tired lately. He was feeling so good. He lost all this weight. And I'm like, mm, is he in blood pressure meds or something? He's like, yeah, he's on two. Like, and he goes, you know, we measured it the other day. It was, it was pretty low. I was like, okay, where is he? <laughs> like, you get over here, you know. And we're stopping, you know, spousal medications. He's he's collateral damage, right? Totally. And so but that's the was, best part about this kind of medicine, right? Yes. Is that it becomes a family affair, and yes. you end up having not just one patient but the whole family, right? Which is awesome. exactly. And what's wonderful is you can actually, in telemedicine, you're seeing the whole family. I mean, you can literally see the whole family. And right. I do that. <laughs> it's so much fun. But before we go, I know we, at Slifer, and I, I really wanted to talk to you about where you're located, how people can connect with you. Tell us everything all about Dr. Harkin and how we can become yeah. part of your practice. Yeah. So, um, so I have, uh, as I said, a preventive telecardiology practice. It's called Whole Heart Cardiology. I'm physically located in San Francisco, um, but I'm licensed to see patients in California, New York, and Florida. Awesome. Um, and they can find me just on my website, uh, www.wholeheartcardiology.com. I'm also fairly active on Instagram at Nicole Harkin MD. Um, and just follow along. And even if you know you're not. Uh, 
uh, interested in being a patient. Like I love interacting with everyone and just, it's, it's just such a fun community of all working together to, to improve heart health and increase our plan intake and all that good stuff. Well, I have a feeling this would be a very popular podcast and we probably have to have you back on Dr. Harkin. I love it. I think (laughs) think there's going to be a lot of questions that we'd spurn because we didn't even begin to touch. We didn't talk about SH. We didn't talk. I mean, we have, there's so much more to cover. There's so much more to cover. And uh, it's just, it's so, so fascinating. But, you know, most of my plant-based docs that I know are either cardiologists or family practice. So it's a great conversation that we're having right here. (laughs) It is. I love it. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing just even a small nugget of your wisdom and your experience and I'm super excited guys you definitely see the links below wholeheartcardiology.com and um, it was just lovely talking to you and we can't wait to have you back again love it bye guys bye thanks for watching and I hope thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed that interview and if you could please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating on whatever platform that you're listening to this podcast we really appreciate the feedback In addition to this, I did want to let you know that we actually do video recordings of all of our interviews. And if you'd rather watch them, you can check out our YouTube channel at Healthy Human Revolution. There we also have other resources for you. One in particular I'm really excited about is called The Doctor's Inn. That's where I actually answer questions from the audience and do tons of topics like cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, and just things to help you stay well. So check it out and Also, don't forget the HealthyHumanRevolution.com website where you have all the resources you need to actually start and sustain a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet.